0: Everyone, thanks for coming back to donor conception conversations. Today, I have a little more legal advice for you, but it's a little bit different. You're going to meet Richard Vaughn. He is a very well-known international fertility lawyer in our industry. And he does a lot of domestic, but also international fertility laws. So you're going to learn things about whether or not you should have an international donor. If you're an international couple, what does that mean? And all sorts of things, certainly about disclosure, about openness, about making different sorts of contracts that will be right for your family. He also talks about his own family building journey and what it means to him to have two children and be be in this wonderful, happy marriage. So he's gonna cover a lot of ground and I think you'll learn a lot by tuning in. So I hope you enjoy the episode and please feel free, as always, to reach out to me with any questions. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family, or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I have learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today, I have the wonderful privilege of Richard Vaughn coming on to the podcast. He's had the opportunity to help thousands of intended parents from all over the world build families with assisted reproduction. In addition to his busy legal practice, he devotes numerous volunteer hours to advancing for LGBTIA, intended parents and their families, and he's the immediate and past chair of the American Bar Association's Family Law Section Committee on Assisted Reproductive Technology. That's a mouthful. He is a founder and speaker (laughs) of the first Cambridge University International Surrogacy Symposium as an active member of the California Bar Association and its Family Law Section, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine's Legal Professionals Group and the National LGBT Bar Association and is active with family equality, which we we all love. He has been published in professional journals and has presented at numerous legal and family building conferences around the world and is often seen in the media. He's also an experienced fitness instructor, triathlete, and a former paramedic, very talented, and a board member of the Medical Device Company. In 2008, Rich and his spouse, Tommy Wolfel, were married in California and became the proud parents through egg donation and surrogacy of twin sons, Aiden and Austin, which is very exciting, and I can't wait to hear all about that. So welcome, Richard. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So did I leave anything out that you'd like to share with the audience? (laughs)
1: Uh, The only other thing is um, I'm now preparing for the New York Marathon.
0: Oh my goodness. So, you know.
1: I don't sit still very well.
0: Yeah, I can see that. That's fantastic. And that's a tough one, the New York Marathon.
1: So I hear, but I hear most people talk about the experience uh, of the crowds, the energy, the, the the social aspect of it. So looking forward to it.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, good for you. That's great. Speaking of marathons, you had quite a marathon journey with your own family, right? I mean, you you know, this is what you do, this is what you live and breathe, but you built your own family through assisted reproduction. Can you tell us a little bit about that to start?
1: Yes, of course, I want to say well played on the marathon connection. Thank you. <laughs> um, So my husband and I met in 2000, started dating in 2001, and within a year, year and a half, started talking about wanting to have a family not knowing how to do it at the time. We'd only really heard of adoption. We had some friends of ours who um, we came across who had actually been through surrogacy. So, of course, we went to dinner with them, got lots of information from them, uh, referrals, recommendations, and started doing our research more informally through friend contacts. A couple of years later, we went to a local uh, family building conference in Los Angeles at the time. There was a group called the Pop Luck Club. So it was a a pun, a play on potluck. It was all gay dads getting together socially. And they had grown and uh, they began hosting these conferences where they would have, you know, uh, fertility doctors and some agencies come to explain what, what they do and how things work. So we went to one of those, found it incredibly informative, but overwhelming. And, uh, of course, realized that it was an expensive journey. Uh, And then we kind of put it to the side because we knew we needed to save up for this process. So uh, fast forward a couple more years, and we got serious about starting our family and started telling people we were looking around. Someone in my husband's spin class said, oh, you need to talk to my friend Will. He's an attorney in this space. Um, So we went and talked to Will. At that time, I was in the medical device company as an in-house counsel, Um, but we had sort of lost some funding and I had a long period of time to look for new work. So we had our consult with this this guy, Will. I found it fascinating. And I called him back the next day and I said, what's it like to practice in this area? So at the same time that we began our journey, I actually began working in this field. So long story short, I was at the right place at the right time and they hired me. And um, I've been working in this field ever since 2006. Wow! So uh, in the okay. process of forming our family, we of course had to engage an egg donor and a surrogate. So we began our search for the donor and uh, found one at an agency in San Diego, started having that conversation about, you know, what kind of donation what we're looking for an open donation anonymous donation and it made sense to us at the time this was back in 2007 to to make it an open donation just to have our information out there um, and not be not be halted by the fears that other people had expressed about, you know, the dangers of open donation, like, you know, these unfounded fears that a donor would come knocking on the door years later saying, hey, I'm your mommy or, or vice versa, that, you know, we or the kid would knock on her door saying, you're my mom and, you know, we need money. Uh, uh-huh. We weren't. We weren't persuaded by those fears and we felt like it was the right thing to do to have an open donation. Mm -hmm. So we engaged the donor, I went through the legal process, ended up doing two cycles with the donor because we, we had kind of a lower production out of the first cycle, but were successful after the second cycle, ended up engaging a surrogate as well, went through that process also with an agency, and our kids were born in 2008. We got married just a few weeks before the kids were born because there was that short window of time in California where it was legal before Prop 8 passed, and then you know several years later in 2015 same-sex marriage was was allowed nationwide. But we were married just a few weeks before the kids were born. Hmm. And so well, that's, that's how I can always remember how, how long I've been married and how old the kids are. <laughs> you don't get in trouble. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. You know, it's so interesting. I want to hear more about this, but I just want to stop for a second, Richard, because I think what you mentioned earlier about the donor maybe wanting to be involved in the child's life is a very common fear for people. And I find that Both, I don't know what your experience has been, but I find that both recipients and donors worry about that. Right? Sometimes the donors might say to me, "Well, you know, are the recipients going to want me to be involved in their lives?" And then the recipients say, "I'm really worried the donor is going to be involved in my life in some way or come want to take these kids away." And neither is true. Really, everybody's just there to help make a baby and wants everybody to be happy, right? And so you probably see that with a lot of the clients that you work with.
1: Well, I've certainly heard the concerns expressed to me, but I can also share with my clients, whether I'm representing a donor or an intended recipient, that we've never seen any situation arise where someone has crossed the line. In this regard, I will say there was one case where some intended parents met with a donor before they began their legal work, and they got a little too friendly and started talking about our child when it was really she was going to be an egg donor for these this intended parent couple. These were friends of mine, actually. They went to dinner and had drinks, and I think got a little too excited mm-hmm. and and I think crossed the line with some of their vocabulary, and that match fell apart oh. because I think they they everybody got a little too too eager at that early stage, but. In no case where parents and donors have matched together and and gone forward and and gone through a cycle and and a retrieval and and created embryos and such have I ever seen the donor cross the line in in contacting the parents or vice versa. So I think it's been a very respectful process all around. Uh, I would say that, you know, egg donors, in in my experience, they, they just want to do something good to help people, make a little money at it while they're doing it, but they have no interest you know, in in crossing the line and interfering in the family's lives. So I'm very happy to report there've been really no issues there.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's, it is understandable, right? Because when you're building your family, this is like the most intimate thing that you can do, right? You have somebody that you love and you want to make a baby with them. And sometimes you can't, right? And so you need the help from somebody else. And that can feel so strange because here's this person who feels like a stranger and you're taking their genetics into your life. And so it's, I think, natural for people to be a little afraid or hesitant.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a, a normal human tendency to have that fear of how does this work? Will there be any problems? Those are normal questions to ask. And, and I do get them quite a bit. We get similar questions with surrogacy too, such as, you know, can she take the baby? Will she change her mind? Those are the, the big picture fears that, that come in. And until the participants get educated on the process from professionals like yourself and attorneys and agencies, um, you know, they they will have those fears, but that's it's our job to help dispel those fears.
0: Well, I'm sure you put everyone's mind to rest quite a bit, Richard. So that's that's wonderful that your clients have you to help them with that. Do you find that there are other concerns that they that might Prevent them from moving forward, or thing other things they feel scared about.
1: A lot of intended parents, especially heterosexual couples, are concerned about disclosing to their child that they use an egg donor and, and mm-hmm. how to disclose. Can they keep it a secret? Um, so that will that conversation will come up from time to time, and you know, without imposing my opinion, you know, I, I try to walk them through that and talk them through sort of. What we all generally in this field feel is important, which is honesty and and truth, you know, to the children, donor-conceived children, because it's it's important for them to know, and it's certainly much less desirable for that child to later find out and then you know, have that child that child now feels like their whole life has been a lie. Um, so I think it's better to disclose whenever possible. So I, that that that's one of the other fears that comes up quite a bit.
0: And you were sharing with me a little bit that you've kind of felt that way with your own family, right? Your kids are very comfortable with their origins.
1: Yes, of course. Now our kids um, have two dads, so part of the the conundrum is not really much of a mystery, right? They they know that uh, we had to engage someone; they had to, their birth had to happen somehow. So the surrogacy piece became the first of the story in terms of, you know, do we have a mom? No, there's no mom. You have two dads. There are all kinds of families out there, and you are special, you are wanted, and you are loved. And that was an easy uh, easy uh, hurdle to cross with the kids. Then as they got a little older, um, they had questions that related to, you know, uh, genetics. When they were eight or nine, they started asking, you know, if they were going to look like one of their dads when they grew up. Mm-hmm. They started to get that concept of that genetic connection. And as they grew older, as their questions grew in depth, we would expand the story. And when, they, when we felt they were ready, we would you know, enter in the, the discussion about the egg donor. And I tell you, for a number of years, even though we mentioned egg donor, without getting into detail, it, it really just kind of went over their head. They didn't quite get that. And maybe it's because they're boys and boys can be a little slower to, to learn sometimes. But by age 11, I think that's when they first started asking more questions about the egg donor. It, it finally started to resonate. And so we expanded the story and told them a little more. And um, they were fascinated, really fascinated about, especially the donor's background. They really wanted to know like, her, her ethnicities. And they found that really exotic and they, they felt even more special when they learned about her background and her family's background. Um, So those conversations continued and by age 13, uh, they asked to see the profile. So they got to learn a lot about the donor at that time. They read the profile word for word, cover to cover, and they were truly fascinated and they're 14 now, so that's kind of where my you know, story of the disclosure part ends. I'm curious to see if they're going to want to meet the donor. So um, we'll see where that goes. But we did leave open that possibility with our egg donor by having an open arrangement uh, where oh, she agreed great. to being contacted in the future. So that's another big issue we talk a lot about with our, our clients as well, is whether to, to um, you know, have an open arrangement, semi-open or fully anonymous. Mm-hmm. So we, we talk about that a lot with our clients.
0: That's great. And it, and it was so forward thinking for you to start to think about that. I mean, developmentally, that does kind of make sense because kids, are curious about whose tummy they grew in when they were little. But as they grow older, developmentally, you know, preteen years, that's when they understand the concept of genetics. So it sounds like they, you know, kind of are right on track emotionally and really understand, you know, where they come from and feel very comfortable with it, which is wonderful. And it's so nice for you to be able to say, yes, we've done this for you. We've already thought ahead, which is hard to do, right, when you're in the kind of tumult of trying to figure out what you're gonna do at the fertility clinic and how you're going to understand reproduction. I mean, who even remembers their tenth grade biology class, right? I mean, there's so much to know. And then to kind of think also, I've got to make this plan for my kids for the future is very forward thinking.
1: Well, thank you. We had we had good advice from our, our our team of professionals that were part of our our journey, you know, our lawyers, our our doctors, the agencies. Um, so I have to give some of the credit or a lot of the credit to them for opening our eyes to that conversation. You know, when we started the process, we were new intended parents like everybody else. Um, So these were all new concepts for us.
0: Yeah. And how do you see that changing, Rich? How do you see that changing now? Because you probably have many more requests for that.
1: Absolutely. It's been a phenomenal uh, shift in, in the field. And, you know, I have the luxury of having joined a firm that had already existed, uh, a third-party assisted reproduction firm. So our experience goes back to 1992. I started in the business in 2006, but having talked with our senior partners at the time who've since retired, back then, 99% of all egg donation arrangements were anonymous. There might have been a handful here and there that were with friends or family members, and so those were obviously known. Donor situations, but most egg donations at that time through agencies and such were all anonymous, uh, based a little bit in part on that fear. And just because that's kind of all we knew, we had decades of experience with closed adoptions prior to that. And that's just what we knew at the time. Then, if you fast forward from like the early 90s to the mid 2000s, we started to see, you know, a ho- slightly higher percentage, maybe 5% became known arrangements, maybe ten percent, then, you know, just as of even eight years ago, maybe that number was fifteen or twenty percent. But what we see in our practice today, and this is a number that's constantly changing, I, I think we're probably closer to the seventy percent range wow. of known so out of all of our donations, I'd say seventy percent are known donor arrangements. So it's 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 changed dramatically. And that change has happened in large part in the last five, six years, I'd say. So if you asked me five years ago, I might have said 35% or 40% and then 50%. But it's, it's, it's increasing a lot. There's several reasons for that. Among others, I think there's growing awareness and understanding of, of the benefits for the child. Uh, there's also no way to really guarantee anonymity anyway, right? We, right. So, so why Absolutely. try? Right. Why try? Let's just make sure <laughs> we let everybody know yes. there's no way to promise anonymity. So there's 23andMe, Ancestry.com. There's Google face recognition. Wow. Who knows? You know, there's all kinds of things. So let's just uh, face this head on. And um, you know, most people are, are aware of that. And I think a lot of donors are very comfortable with the concept mail as well. So you've got parents thinking more about it, donors thinking more about it. So more and more people are, are open to this idea.
0: So do the donors come to you and say, "I really want to have an open relationship," or are they just flexible about the type of match?
1: For the most part, when we are introduced to the participants, it's it's a referral from a clinic or an agency. The match has already been made, and they've already established that they're going to be known or not known. We do get cases though where perhaps the donor has been listed anonymously at first, but as we begin the the contract stage of their uh, journey, the donor will call and say, "You know, I'm open to whatever level of." of of openness the parents are. Or sometimes the parents will present that to us. And so it may have been, the match might have been made as an anonymous arrangement. But as the conversation actually starts, once the legal work really gets started, then we do find from time to time that the donors or the parents are, are saying, look, we're open to more if everybody's comfortable. So that's happening frequently now.
0: That's fantastic. That's really fantastic for everyone. And you know, ultimately for the children, right? Because. We have this opportunity to do something nice and think about something for the ch- children, so that they have access. And you know, all the newest research is really showing us that as children get older, they're really curious. And sometimes they want to pursue it, sometimes they don't, but they have that information. And if they're curious about medical information, if they're curious to meet, if they're curious about culture, whatever they want to know, they have that available. And that's just such a nice thing to give to the children. I think it's it might be harder for and I you probably see this in your practice for women who have infertility problems than For a gay couple who, you know, who don't have that concern or that loss involved. And also for people who, you know, are new to the treatment, maybe this, they're just realizing they're infertile and this has not been something that they're, you know, accustomed to understanding. Do you find that, that parents struggle when they talk to you about this, that they're kind of struggling with the idea? Do you find that, or do you find that they're just kind of accepting that this is, eventually what their children are going to want.
1: We do find from time to time intended mothers in particular are struggling with the concept. Um, For the most part, it's intended mothers, sometimes intended fathers as well. When they're new to it and they haven't had a lot of time to really uh, digest this information, um, it can be a difficult concept to, to discuss. But... What I find is more and more in our field, all the allied professionals are are aware of this conversation, aware of these issues and discussing it. So they're getting this information, not only from lawyers, but consultants and professionals like yourself, agencies as well. So we're finding less and less of those instances where people are coming to the table really afraid or unsure. It does still happen from time to time, but I think not to pat ourselves on the back i think the industry the field as a whole is doing a better job approaching this this uh, topic with clients as they enter the process
0: so when they come to you they're already thinking about this and they're already thinking about you know this is something that i want to do what do you usually advise them to put into their legal contracts because there really is so much right to are we going to stay in touch with the donor over time are we going to ask for medical information? What about the future? There's so many things I suspect that people can add into that contract.
1: Right. So in an egg donor agreement, several areas of the contract touch on these future-related concepts. Uh, So we touch on the potential for exchanging medical information, if necessary, in the future. Um, In an anonymous arrangement, there's still that provision where we discuss exchanging medical information. It just gets exchanged, if needed, through the clinic or through the attorneys in the future and not directly with each other. Mm. But as we explore everyone's comfort level with this concept of, of contact or communication, we can also discuss the possibility of signing on to a donor sibling registry or, or similar type of registry where it's essentially a, a portal for intended parents and donors to communicate with each other, and it can remain anonymous for them so they can actually have direct contact contact in an anonymous way so that if they do need to talk, get information, exchange medical information, there's another way Mm -hmm. to do it. But more and more, once you broach the subject of contact and communication in the future, uh, we we get into other areas of how they might uh, be in touch with each other. So the other aspects of the contract that we're touching on are not just exchanging medical information, but future contact. Whether there will be any, what are the parameters around it? Uh, would it be through a registry? Would they perhaps exchange an anonymous email address so they can communicate directly, uh, but not through a registry? Or would they just be willing to exchange you know, contact information? And then if so, when? Would they exchange that information in the contract, in the contract itself? Would they exchange information after the retrieval is completed or exchange that information after there's been a birth? Yep. of a child, mm-hmm. which, which you know is, is really sort of the most relevant time point. I mean, if, there is, if, if a child doesn't result from the process, there may not be a need for future communication, right? So, so we have a lot of people sort of opting for that one. We do also talk about, in addition to just contact with each other, we also address the issue of, is the donor willing to be contacted by the child? if the child is curious. So we are adding that clause to a lot of contracts these days. I'd say 75% of the open donations are allowing for this possibility that the child could contact the donor. And, and so you know we're asking the donor, is she willing to be contacted in the future? So we actually broach that subject. And the way that we explain it to intended parents is, you know, look, you, know, you can say to your child, you did everything you could to leave the door open to future contact. There's no way to guarantee. You know, that there right. will be a, a meeting a meeting in the future, but the best you can do as an intended parent at this point is is leave the door open as wide as you can uh, so that that possibility exists.
0: It's so nice for parents to be able to have that. It's, I'm sure it's so helpful for them to know that they've done everything they can for their children because that's, you know, ultimately what we all want, right? And we think about children's health and this is one more piece of the puzzle, really make sure that we know. And, you know, also for the the child's um, medical information. I mean, I'm sure we are over years are going to discover so many more things. Donors are young and healthy when they donate, but we don't know what they're going to develop over time. So it's so important even just kind of for that that medical piece.
1: Absolutely. I'm I'm in full agreement. (laughs)
0: And what about the, because you have an international law firm, Rich, I was wondering about that. What about international regulations? Because you see people from all over the world who have all different sorts of, um, you know, combinations of things they have to deal with, and they're dealing with sometimes American fertility clinics. So it must be very complicated.
1: There are certainly a number of other rules and regulations to, to consider in this field when you have intended parents from other countries perhaps coming to the US to engage in assisted reproduction, including egg donation and, and surrogacy. In quite a number of countries, they have codified into their law that the child has a right to know. And this is evolved out of adoption legal circles, but it, it's parlayed into you know, assisted reproduction to the extent that they acknowledge assisted reproduction. So we have a number of countries that would essentially essentially require the intended parents to engage an open donor, because that's, that's what they require there. So in many of these arrangements, when they come to the US, although we will get them declared and confirmed as legal parents here in the US, when they go back home with their baby, they may have to do further legal work to confirm their, their parental rights in their home country and to get citizenship for that child in the home country. And if they haven't met their home country's rules and requirements regarding open donation, they could have an issue getting their parental rights confirmed. So it's something that we factor into our initial advice when we meet the intended parents. So for certain countries, Australia is one, some other countries in, in Europe have this requirement as well. We make sure that they are aware they need to match with an open donor. On the flip side, there are some countries where um, having an open donor would create massive legal hurdles for them. Um, So in those countries, they have to consider matching with an anonymous donor um, or taking the risk and and just matching with an open donor for the sake of the child. That's a whole other podcast probably right there.
0: (laughs) So do you have to prove that legally? I mean, do you have to provide paperwork to say this person's open or this person's going to be anonymous or
1: Yes. In some countries, you may have to provide a copy of the egg donation agreement or perhaps an affidavit from the doctor or the lawyer that was involved in the process. It's
0: so complicated. And what about foreign donors? Uh, is there any, and I, you know, I, I know that there are a lot of people out there who are probably worried about the lack of regulation in the U.S., right? There's no tracking system for donors. And so any egg bank or sperm bank or agency can say, you know, as far as I know, this donor's only donated three or four times, but there's no way to track it, right? So people very often will say, what can I do about that? What if I get a donor from, you know, New Zealand or from Australia? Would that help me? Is that even possible?
1: Is the question, would that help them control the number of donations, donations that yep. were done? And mm-hmm. And, and and minimize the risk of having, you know, Many related siblings, children yes. out there. Yeah, this this concept is called consanguinity. Yeah, mm-hmm. fancy word. Maybe. It depends on the regulations in that country. But it doesn't prevent that donor from donating in other countries. You know, she, if she wants to, you know, donate more, I suppose she could. Um, that, that's an area we have a lot more work to do in, you know, not only in the U.S., but, but globally.
0: Yeah. And even in some countries where there are tracking systems, it's not... Bulletproof, either. People are still kind of getting around it. So it's really not possible to control, which I guess brings us back to this importance of disclosure, right?
1: Absolutely. So the the other way around this, um, or at least to help prevent problems, is to have that conversation with your children and let them know that, you know, if they meet someone, you know, in this day and age, it's possible that child was conceived through assisted reproduction. So knowing just a little bit about where things occurred, where the donation took place, and what state the child was born or year, you know, then you can help at least sort of triangulate that way, even if you don't have a tracking system. So it's just better to have that conversation with the children up front,
0: right? Do you have um, people people who are interested in using donors from abroad?
1: It does come up from time to time. We've had a few where uh, they might find donors in Brazil or. Argentina. We've got a couple from other places as well, but we do, we do see that from time to time. Most intended parents, though, are, that we work with are engaging with donors here in the U.S. There are some complications that have to be considered when, when parents are matching with donors from other countries, and that is, you know, they, they have, the donor still needs to be screened according to FDA guidelines. The donor still needs to be able to get into the U.S., for the procedures, for the, the cycle and the procedure itself. Mm-hmm. We've seen some some donors that were not able to get in, and I, that was wow. usually just from a lack of planning. A lack of planning, so that, that can be overcome with proper planning, but it, it's something that takes a little bit of extra work.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you usually tell your clients that it's not advisable to go through all that to try to find a donor from outside of the U.S.?
1: I wouldn't say that. I would just say that there are some additional hurdles to clear if that's what they're considering. Mm-hmm. Um, my job is to guide them and advise them, not tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, unless, unless it's something illegal, <laughs> right? right? But if, if it's just more difficult, then, you know, that's not a reason not to do it. Mm-hmm. So if that perfect donor is yeah. from some other country, you know, that's, your, that's the parent's personal choice. So we will, you know, work on how to make that possible.
0: And then what about known donors who are related, like sometimes, you know, somebody will want to use their sister or a cousin. Do you see many of those contracts or do you see that increasing as well?
1: We do see this from time to time. I would say the most common situation is that folks will come to us with an idea that they'll use a sister or a Mm -hmm. family member uh, or even a friend, somebody close, you know, as a donor. And then We talk them through some of these issues, some of the things they need to consider. We always encourage them, especially in a situation like that where they're so close that they're all getting proper psychological um, uh, consultations and evaluations. So they, they have the opportunity individually to all think through these issues before they go forward. So what'll happen is they'll approach us, they'll say this is what they want to do, and then you know probably half the time those matches don't go forward after they carefully think through all the issues that are involved. There's some concepts to sort of get comfortable with when you're using a sister as a donor. Yes. Is she is. Is she the is she the aunt, anti donor? Is she? So it gets a little complex. So if they can clear those hurdles, think through those things, and still feel comfortable, then we're you know we'll move forward with them. And then there would be some variations in how we would draft the contract in those types of arrangements because you typically will have provisions in a sort of a standard sort of agency donor arrangement that says that there's no contact between the family she can't contact the child without the parents consent but if she's a family member they're going to be in regular contact like family yes, members are yes. so we have to we have to modify the contract to to fit the the actual situation
0: so it sounds like what you're saying rich is that a lot of these situations might seem very complicated but they're all kind of doable if the parents really want to pursue a particular avenue, you can kind of try to find a way to make it work for them.
1: Yes. Yes. As long as they're going forward fully informed, you know, fully aware of the issues that are involved and they've had psychological consultations and, and clearance as well as all the other standard clearances, the medical clearance, of course, and legal clearance, then yes, they can work.
0: That's great. And do you see any changes happening that you think can be helpful to donor conception, I, I know there's you know quite a lot of difficulty legally now with surrogacy because of you know the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and so we have to be careful about that. And what? It, but what about with egg donation? Do you think that there's any changes legally that we're seeing that might impact on family building?
1: No, generally speaking, the changes that we're seeing regarding egg donation and surrogacy are, are more welcoming laws being developed. A lot of the, the, the laws revolving around egg donation and surrogacy are simply that there's no law in the state, so it's allowed because it's not prohibited. Hmm. But there are some states with case law where the courts have entertained you know, disputes between parties and, and ruled on certain issues. So that can provide some sort of guidance on this issue of assisted reproduction. And then there are states with some statutory treatment of, of surrogacy. Most of the statutes deal mainly with surrogacy and sperm donation. Fewer of them deal directly with egg donation. But oh. as the collective legal consciousness is is increasing, the more statutes that are evolving, they're now actually addressing egg donation, sperm donation, embryo donation, and surrogacy. So the trend is toward more legal protection, more legal comprehensive protections uh, in place. Wow,
0: that's really interesting. It's a positive trend. Yeah, Yeah. that's really interesting. Well, and it's so important, right, that we all feel like we could be protected, our embryos are protected, and we don't really have to, you know, we can move forward and not worry so much about building our families and all the legal ramifications that might seem so scary out there.
1: Yes, yes. The legal landscape is becoming more and more well-developed so that the parties, all of the parties are are well-protected.
0: That's great. Well, it's really nice to hear all of that, Rich, and thank you so much. I think that's a good place for us to to wrap up, but it sounds like you've put everybody's mind at ease, and everybody out there, hopefully you feel comforted by all these things that Rich is saying, because it's really possible to build your family, and maybe it takes a little maneuvering, but it sounds like there's so many options for so many families.
1: Absolutely. Fully agree, and it's my pleasure to be here, Lisa.
0: Well, thanks so much, Rich. And if someone wants to reach you, how do they reach you?
1: So you can reach me at our website, www.iflg.net, or feel free to email me at rich@iflg.net. Happy to help you.
0: Okay, terrific. Thanks again. And for all of you out there, please subscribe because that's how we keep going. And that's how you'll hear about more episodes. So thanks for joining us.